0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host Cody McBroom, and today we have part three of the program design series. I'm really excited about this one. Um, as As I said in the previous one, guys. If you haven't checked out part one and part two, please do so. You don't necessarily need to listen to that before this one. So if you're already listening to this and you're excited about what I'm going to get into, don't feel like you absolutely need to stop this podcast right now. Go get the other one and listen to that. However, I will say that they are in a specific order for a specific reason. So we purposely put these in order of importance, right? This is, which is also why the first two were fairly long. Um, I'm going to try to keep this one around 30 minutes. We'll see what happens. Um, I said that about the last ones as well, um, and they were both about an hour. But uh, the first one was assessing the client and setting the goal slash timeline. So we covered goal setting. We covered uh, assessing the individual. We covered mobility and flexibility, instability and weaknesses, as well as injury prevention and posture, which also got into a bunch of different things with RPE, taking sets to failure, um, power powerlifting versus bodybuilding, foam rolling, um, um static stretching, dynamic stretching, specificity of program design, realistic timelines of fat loss, muscle growth, performance, so on and so forth. So a lot of detail there uh, to start your journey. Then part two, uh, the following week, which was last week as you're listening to this, we discussed determining volume, intensity, and frequency. Which also gets into a pretty large subset of categories. Uh, We dove into uh, how specificity determines the goal um, and how you prioritize your volume. More specifically, how two thirds of your volume should be uh, dictated specifically to the primary goal you have. However, you can do multiple things in a single training block. Uh, We also discussed assessing your current volume, intensity, and frequency, and how to count those. uh, the The count the amount of volume you're doing per week. Count the amount of intensity and dictate the frequency you were using, both for primary and secondary uh, muscle groups throughout your exercises. And then we talked about choosing and setting volume totals, uh, genetics, sets versus reps versus total tonnage, um, maximum recoverable volume, intensity, and frequency. Uh, we discussed rep ranges and how to change those throughout the week, isometrics. like We, we really dove into quite a bit with the volume, intensity, and frequency thing because it, it's it's kind of uh, opening Pandora's box, right? You can't just blanket statement say volume because there's so many things that go into the category of volume and there's so many things that are dictated by the amounts of volume you're using. So we really went in depth with that one. Um, And then today we have part three, which is gonna dive into exercise selection, sequencing, and the progression model. And next week you are going to listen to part four, the final... uh, segment of this four-part series, and that is going to be discussing the finer details of program design, which is where we get into tempo, rest periods, supersetting, cardio, Partials, all kinds of different things, uh, as as far as like the the nitty gritty things that don't matter as much, but there's still something that we want to consider and they factor into the art of coaching as a whole. So today, like I said, we're going to dive into exercise selection, sequencing throughout a workout, and then uh, the progression model and periodization plan that you should be following. Um, I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. Uh, I think this is where we kind of take the last two podcasts and we kind of put them together into a plan. Right? We kind of look at things and we go, "Hey, here is the plan of attack. Here is what we Put all this information that we've discussed, we've assessed, we've looked at previous training blocks, we've looked at the individual and what they can handle, we've talked about mobility, flexibility, somebody's capabilities, and uh, range of motion, things like that. And now um, we're going to take all that, take all the volume, intensity, and frequency talk from last week, and we're going to put them into an actual program, right? Uh, obviously, you can't literally see a program as you're listening to this. So I'm going to do my best to paint the picture for you. Uh, And as always, I highly encourage you to go download some of our free stuff because the free guides we have, uh, as well as the free workshops, they literally paint this picture and you can actually visually see it. So the things I want to recommend you go check out today, uh, we have Program Design 101 and Program Design 201. So there's two. Um, 201 is, uh, there is a sound, a clip, it's like a five minute period where the sound gets very quiet my mic busted or unplugged or something as I'm doing the presentation Um, so although the crowd could hear me, the camera could not fully hear me. Um, so when you're watching it, just, just make sure you, you be patient because it's a short clip. It's like literally like just a few minutes, maybe five at most. And then it comes back on and you just got to turn the volume way up. You can still hear me. Uh, But 201 is the same presentation as 101, just a heads up. However, uh, it's just updated. So um, 101 was the first time I gave the presentation. 201 was the second time I gave the presentation a year later, which uh, means that things changed, right? The thing I will say too, is there's also things that have changed since then because research is constantly coming out. Um, I have worked with hundreds of people since then because every single year we work with hundreds of people and I coach my coaches on how to coach people. Uh, I've done countless research reviews with our chief science officer, so things change, right? Um, so I'm just prefacing that as there are things that could be potentially updated. But I think the reason uh, those specific presentations and seminars that you can get, like I said, free access to the recordings for. So you go to the website, go to tailoredcoachingmethod.com/guides. I'm going to put a link for that in the description of this podcast as well. Um, if you go there, you can download these presentations completely free, and they're really going to break down a lot. And the cool thing about those is that I really dive into exercise sequencing and my specific blueprint or skeleton for program design. So although in these podcast series, I'm going to dive way deeper into the research behind some of these topics of periodization, volume, intensity, frequency, mobility, flexibility, all those things that I've discussed so far and of which I'm going to continue discussing throughout the rest of the series. In the presentation, it's much more practical application. I do cover some of the like volume landmarks, things like that, but I really, really dive into how do we put this on paper? How should our workouts look? How do we do this properly, right? And I think that's what you're gonna get a lot out of with those. Now, if you want the written versions of things that are a little more updated and give you access to free programs, you can also check out some of the other guides we have at tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash guides, like the physique manual, which is designed for general population with a scientific twist. So for anybody who is Gem Pop, a.k.a. you are not competing in anything. How like just I'm Gen Pop, right? I'm not competing in anything. I just love to train. And I love to push my body, and I love the science. So if you're like me, you're not competing, but you want to build your physique, get stronger, and you really want to um, use the science in a practical and understandable way and, and educate yourself on what that science looks like, The physique manual uh, is perfect as well as the performance uh, bodybuilding manual. So both of those are, again, completely free. All of these can be found on our website on the guides page, which you can find a link for in the description of this podcast. So that is a little bit long-winded, but I just wanted to make sure that you guys get access to extra tools and guides that are completely free before I dive into this podcast. Now, with this podcast... Similar to the other podcasts, if you listen to those, uh, you might hear me clear my throat quite a few times. In fact, I'm going to take a sip of water before I dive into this. Excuse me. And the reason is because it is early. So I like to record these bright and early in the morning when the office is empty because I can just zone in and uh, put all distractions away and just grind on these topics. So I'm here solo. It's early in the morning. I might have to clear my throat, so apologies in advance, but let's dive right into the podcast. So the first thing that we want to discuss uh, is, is the specific goals we have and why these things may influence them, right? Why would exercise selection, sequencing, and any type of periodization or progression model actually influence uh, the goals that we have? Um, and I'm going to do this part by part, but before I do, I kind of want to just give you a blanket statement as to why these things are even important, right? Why did I decide to create a whole entire podcast just on exercise sequencing, exercise selection, and progression models and periodization? And the reason is for because this is how we optimize the plan, right? So, for any beginner listening, you want to take all of this in and learn and, and obviously apply what you can, but also not take things too seriously because at the end of the day, if you're a beginner, you're going to grow. You're going to improve, right? We see this all the time with people who are just new to lifting or they've been doing you know, yoga, Zumba, Soul Cycle, circuit classes, stuff like that, and they haven't really ever followed a um, structured strength training program. Periodization matters far less for those people. Um, even the specificity of exercise selection and sequencing matters, matters far less less, because at the end of the day, you're creating tension and mechanical tension and metabolic stress on the muscle. And that's a new stimulus for you. It's different. And therefore, you can get away with kind of just throwing random shit at a wall and it's sticking, right? But as you get more advanced, as you become an intermediate and an advanced lifter, just throwing stuff at a wall and hoping it sticks doesn't work as well because, well, quite simply, you've been doing that already, right? So that same old stimulus that you've been throwing at it is not same old stimulus anymore, right? You have to use exercise selection to increase that metabolic stress and tension on the muscle. You have to use exercise sequencing to try to improve and enhance your performance throughout a workout session, as well as delay injuries, because as you lift heavier, yes, of course, injury risk increases. Now, lifting weights is very safe, but as we discussed in the last one, the rates of injury with power lifters is extremely high, and a lot of that is because they're pushing themselves harder and harder and closer to failure and lifting heavier loads. So it's still something we need to be aware of. Exercise sequencing can limit those injuries that we face, it can help with rehab, and it can also help increase performance and neurological drive throughout a training session. And then a progression model and a periodization plan are two separate things. However, they're kind of the same thing as well, right? A progression model technically is periodization because periodization quite literally is just a scientific structured approach to how you're training. And a progression model would fall into that category. And a periodization plan is a a type of progression model because it's a plan that allows you to progress over time. Right. So in the model is just that it is a system. So they kind of fall in the same category. But the point with those is simple. When things don't just randomly work anymore because you're so new to lifting that everything you do is creating a novelty stimulus and you're growing and you're building strength and so on and so forth. There comes a time where you just have to more methodically plan your, your workouts. And what I always recommend to people is don't take it too seriously at the beginning, at the very beginning, because <clears throat> you don't want to overcomplicate something that you're working hard at. I would rather you just focus on working hard. Don't overcomplicate it. Just get in the gym and work hard. Lift heavy, push yourself, hit an uh, appreciable R- RPE and RIR, and watch the gains happen, right? But before you get to the point where that stops working, start incorporating a periodization plan, it's just like a deload. I tell people all the time. Don't be reactive with deloads, be proactive. And what that means is instead of waiting till your body is broken and you are like crippled, you're fatigued, you're starting to want to binge because you're stressed and, and you you're moody because your nervous system's crashing. Now you're like, fuck, I need to deload, hurry. Do that before that time comes. When you start kind of feeling aches and pain, you kind of start feeling fatigue, take a deload week because you prevent those things from happening. And the same thing is with this, right? Before you completely plateau and you got to try to learn how to incorporate a periodization plan, incorporate a periodization plan before the plateau comes. You don't need to do it right away as a beginner, but eventually you will. Now, the first subject of today that we're going to dive into is exercise selection and your goals. So why do, um, exercise selection, uh, why does exercise selection actually, uh, matter when it comes to your goals? And I'm going to, I'm going to do this for each one, right? I'm going to get more specific with exercise sequencing goals, exercise selection, um, or I'm sorry, exercise, uh, progression model and goals, excuse me, as well as a selection and, um, Sequencing, and then I'm going to dive into some research on all of the above and why it might matter. So, with exercise selection and goals, like the main components that we're looking at here is, is strength, hypertrophy, and concurrent, right? Those are the main goals that we're, we're considering here. Somebody who is listening who just wants to get stronger, somebody who just wants to build muscle or lose fat or just change their physique. So, um, again, for context, for those listening who are just solely focused on fat loss. Every time I say muscle growth, every time I say hypertrophy, every time I say gain, every time I say build, I want you to think of that as your goal as well because the best approach to losing body fat from a training perspective is most likely going to be hypertrophy-based training, trying to build muscle. You should incorporate some strength training, so maybe a concurrent model, which I'm going to get to in a sec. However, if I say hypertrophy, build muscle, um, and then I'm talking about concurrent strength, and you're like, well, what the fuck? He didn't mention training for fat loss. Like I said in part one and part two, there is no great training for fat loss you should be training for a little bit of strength, primarily hypertrophy and building muscle, and you should be dieting uh, for fat loss, potentially adding some cardio and uh, some meat and things like that, which I'm going to discuss in part four. Today's all about training. So, The primary goals we're focusing on is strength, hypertrophy, and concurrent training. So for strength, why does exercise selection matter? Well, exercise selection matters for strength primarily because there are compound lifts that drive the most neurological change in strength. For example, squat, bench, and deadlift are the main compound lifts. I would also throw an overhead press in there like most people. um, And unlike most people, I would throw a bent row or a chin-up in there because I think those should be compound as well. You should incorporate some kind of compound pulling movement as a metric-based movement that you were trying to track over time. But these compound lifts are going to be the most bang for your buck and neurologically stimulating uh, exercises that you can possibly do. That's why they're the compound lifts. That's why there are uh, the power lifts, right? That's why they are in competitive powerlifting, the main things that we're tracking because you have the most capacity to build those. They incorporate the most muscles, both primary and secondary. So you're going to get the most total body effect from doing these exercises. And they're the most measurable strength exercises that you can do. So they are our main compound lifts. So when we consider exercise selection for strength, it gets really really easy because you probably should be doing the compound lifts. Bench, squat, deadlift. If you can throw in one or two more, overhead press and or chin up, those would be smart. Now, the rest of your exercise selection is going to be based on accessories that influence those lifts, which is easy, right? So if a back squat is one of our compound lifts, what are the main lifts that are probably going to help us increase that? Front squat, split squat, walking lunge maybe, different variations of squats, speed squat, Hatfield squat, um, Zercher squat, landmine squat, high rep squat, all kinds of squats, right? Squats are going to improve our squats. If the bench is our compound lift we're talking about, bench press variations, floor press, neutral press, wide press, um, dumbbell press, incline press, all these kind of presses are going to be primary movers. Then we get into accessories that are not the a different variation of that lift because remember – from a neurological perspective, it's good to train that compound lift specifically because you need to build the skill in the bench press. And that means literally doing a bench press with the same grip, same bar, same everything, right? Setup. Then there's a, a benefit to doing accessory bench press lifts, which is gonna be a neutral grip press, a floor press, a wide grip press, an incline press, because it's a press that is mimicking the bench press. However, it's slightly different. So we're going to get a very similar neurological adaptation while changing the muscular and skeletal uh, movement pattern and stimulus. And that is going to prevent injuries from overload, right? Or overuse. If you're just doing bench press every fucking day, you're probably going to acquire some injuries. But if you're doing bench press one to three times a week, you can probably stay safe and improve that lift. Even better, you're doing one or two bench presses per week for a combat lift, and then you're doing similar bench press movements with different variations to avoid overuse injury because your, your joints, your muscles, these things aren't being placed in the same positions and over the same tension and resistance curves. So it's going to limit injuries. This is why... Uh, Louis Simmons with West Side Conjugate Method, they do different lifts every week. They change things constantly because they're changing things to eliminate injury prevention. Now, these guys are lifting 500 to 1,000 pounds on lifts, and that's not uncommon, so obviously this it's a much higher risk of injury for them, and this principle works better, which is why they do it every week, but if you're doing a bench press once a week on weeks on end, and then your other press of the week is an incline press or a neutral press or floor press, that's probably going to be a, a good bet to eliminate overuse injuries and still improve the bench press itself. Then we get into accessories that influence that compound lift to eliminate weak points. So, if you notice that your biggest sticking point on a bench press, for example, is the lockout, well, that probably means that you have uh, a tricep issue, right? Whether that's related to shoulder mobility, uh, whether that's related to uh, flexibility in the the bicep or the lat or the chest, or it's just literally your tricep strength sucks then we need to work on your tricep strength, right? We, we, we're going to create accessory movements that are going to build the lat in a stretch position if that's the issue. We're going to bu- use accessories that are going to build your triceps in the locked out position if that's the issue, right? Close grip bench or push downs or dips, things like that that focus on and isolate the tricep because our goal is to build the tricep for the bench press, right? Um, this is why most power lifters do a lot more tricep isolation than bicep isolation. Because it's way more applicable to the bench press for them if it is a squat that you're struggling with, well what end range is it the bottom end range? okay well, then we need to get into deep stretch positions maybe we do deficit lunges where we create a big stretch or, or pistol squats or a um, or a step up or something like it with a high box we can create that huge stretch right a front squat so we can get in more depth and create a, and do a pause at the bottom isometrics you can also do um, uh, static uh, Pin squats. So basically setting up a pin um, right above the bottom of your squat and you go from the bottom of the squat and you drive into the pin and you're just holding that. So you're pressing against it with an overload weight that you can't fully lift or you're pushing into a pin so you can't actually get past the pin because the bar gets stopped and you're building strength in that bottom range, right? You can also start from the bottom on a squat. So there's a lot of different things you can do here, but the point is, is for for exercise selection, your strength, compound lifts are the main thing, and then you have accessories and isolation exercises specifically to build strength or eliminate weak points for those compound lifts. When we move to hypertrophy, exercise selection matters a lot because, one, hypertrophy is regional. So if you're after specific hypertrophy goals or definition, muscle growth in certain areas, then you need to do exercises that isolate those specific areas, quite literally, so if you're a bodybuilder and we're looking at compound lifts, your compound lift, they'll still be bench squat deadlift. However, your squats probably going to be a high bar close stance, uh, squat. Why? Because we're going to get more depth. We're going to create more tension on the quads. We're probably going to elevate our heels. We might not be able to lift as much weight as a, uh, a different variation of squat that we're better with, right? If we're better with a little bit of a wider stance, a low bar squat, we can lift heavier, which isn't uncommon. Great. But a high bar closer stance squat while, you will, while letting your knees travel over your toes because your heels are elevated, let's say, you're going to place way more of a stretch and way more tension on your quads specifically rather than your glutes, and you are going to get more hypertrophy for your quads specifically. So the compounds become much more specific towards a, an enhanced range of motion, which is also why maybe a deadlift isn't your go-to, right? You could do a sumo deadlift because you can get a wider stance. You can sit back into it a little bit lower. You can get more glutes in a, in a sumo. Uh, Squat than, or I'm sorry, sorry, a sumo deadlift than the other deadlifts. But for most bodybuilders, your uh, your deadlift variation is probably going to be a a Romanian deadlift because you get a huge stretch on the hamstrings. And we know that the stretch phase of a lift is the primary, one of the primary mechanisms to growth. So we need to encourage a fuller, a larger range of motion for the compound lifts, which is also why a, a bodybuilder might be doing a Wide grip bench press instead of a regular bench press that allows them to lift heavier. Um, or a close grip if triceps are the, their point that they need to grow. Um, and then they're choosing isolation exercises, not necessarily to build that Romanian deadlift or close stance squat. But they are choosing isolation exercises to enhance the other muscles because we want to balance it out. So like the power lifter who might be doing more, um, maybe they're doing more squat variations and they're doing more uh, tricep uh, variations because they're trying to build their squat and bench, a bodybuilder or a fat loss client or somebody enhancing their physique is probably going to do a a compound lift that has encourages more range of motion, like I just explained. And they're going to choose accessory and isolation exercises that balance out the volume and the stress placed on the muscles more. So they might do that squat, but then they might do an RDL. They might follow that with a split squat. Then they might do leg extensions and leg curls. Then they might do calf raises and glute abductions. They're doing things because they're going, it's a leg day. I need to hit all the heads of my quad. I need to hit all the heads of my uh, hamstrings. I got to hit my glutes. I got to hit my calves. I'm going to hit my abs. I'm trying to spread tension out in volume because I'm trying to enhance my physique and sculpt my body. Whereas a power lifter doesn't care about that. They want a bigger bench and therefore they're going to bench a lot and they are going to do a lot of tricep exercises because that's what they need to work on. Um, Now we shift to concurrent And concurrent training kind of combines all the above. So in a concurrent model, which is pretty common for most people chasing general fat loss and or people who care about strength just as much or even just a little bit less than hypertrophy, like myself. I really like aesthetics are usually my main driver, but I really do also care about getting stronger and performing better. So for somebody like myself or those listening who, who can relate to that. Exercise selection matters because of all of the above, right? So it's it's not because we need to do one or the other, but rather we need to do both. We need to build the compound lifts and therefore we need to pick accessory exercises that allow us to do so and eliminate weak points. But we also want hypertrophy or body composition changes, which means that we need to add isolation exercises as well, which we're going to dive into a little bit with the uh, my model of exercise sequencing as well as the periodization at the end. But the point is, is if you're a concurrent athlete or trainee, you're probably going to combine a lot of the above. So you might start with a squat, then you're going to go into an accessory lift for the squat or the deadlift, depending on what kind of, um, uh, split you're doing. But let's say you do a, uh, you're doing a, whatever kind of squat allows you to lift the heaviest. So you're not focused on hypertrophy here. And then you do an accessory exercise. That's going to get you hypertrophy, but it's going to work, work on your weak point, which maybe that's knee stability in valgus. So you got to do a unilateral movement. So maybe you do a reverse lunge or a Bulgarian split squat after that. Or if you're doing an upper lower split and you want to work on your deadlift after the squat, you do an RDL, um, kill two birds with one stone. The RDL might help you in your deadlift, but it also might build hypertrophy because it's a stretch-based hamstring exercise um, that creates a lot of tension. And then you're going to go into isolation exercises that are going to be more for vanity purposes. And then maybe you go into some metabolic stress at the end to you know burn calories, increase your aerobic system or anaerobic system, you're doing a finisher. So you might go from um, doing some... Uh, jump squats or box squats to a barbell squat to a RDL to leg extensions and leg curls and then follow up with an assault bike and ab uh, exercise so that you're doing some kind of like metabolic anaerobic aerobic work as well as core stability because you want to build a strong core but you want to have abs right so now we're kind of combining all of the above Um, now exercise sequencing is a lot easier to understand uh, and for me to describe in in brief context uh, and how it relates to your goals is because it almost is always going to be the same process regardless of your goal, strength, hypertrophy, concurrent, uh, because it's designed to enhance performance and eliminate injuries, which we want to do in any regard, with any focus or goal. And all this means is that it's the way we're setting up a training session, right? So what do we start the training session with? What do we finish the training session with? How do we go from exercise A to exercise Z, exercise 1 to exercise 6 or however many exercises you have. How does this sequencing go? What is the order of operations during this training session and why is it that way? That's what exercise sequencing is and it is relative to your goals simply because it's going to enhance your ability to get the most out of it. So, if your goal is hypertrophy, it's going to make sure that you get the most out of each exercise because the order of operations is going to limit fatigue along the session. It's going to enhance load and volume. So how hard you can go, how heavy you can lift, how much volume you can do, because it's managing fatigue and energy throughout the session, right? And it's also managing mental clarity and focus because, as we know, a compound lift like the back squat is going to require more focus and attention um, and neurological uh, priority than the curls at the end of the session. So, So it's really important from that. Perspective. Now, the progression model and goals, like I kind of uh, broke down at the beginning, it, it really just matters because your progression model and your periodization plan is quite literally the plan of attack over the course of months and even up to a year, if not longer. It is literally the plan over time that allows you to increase your goals, your results. Right? It, it's how do we continue progressing? How do we avoid plateaus? Um, and that's what progression models and periodization is. Typically for strength, we're going with a linear progression model, which I'll get to in a sec. Um, however, DUP works well. Uh, so a linear progression model is quite simple. As the weeks go on, your volume lowers, intensity increases, and then you cycle back. So maybe you start with squatting for ten reps. Week two is eight reps. Week three is six reps. Week four is four reps. In week five you go for two rep max and then you re- go back to ten so as the weeks go on your volume actually lowers right the reps are dropping and the load that you were using is increasing because you can obviously squat more for two reps than you can ten reps and that's how you build strength over time um, and then when you return back to ten reps you're probably doing a little bit more than you were at the last block and, and as you repeat the cycle over time you get a a, a stronger 10 rep eight reps six reps four reps two rep max right and you can do this in any way you can do 8, eight six you can do four three two you can do three two one you can five three one you can do seven five three you can do nine seven five three one you can do a three-week block six-week block you can do a lot of different variations of this but the point is volume lowers intensity or load increases hypertrophy I tend to like a double progression model. Linear works as well, um, but not as great because we're lowering volume and we know after the last podcast, volume is the primary mechanism for growth. It's the thing that we should be focused on controlling the most, right? Um, Volume is, is most likely to lead to the best results from a muscle growth and body composition perspective. So we want to try and optimize volume at all costs, which means that doing a linear approach might not work best because we're quite literally lowering volume as the weeks go on, Um, whereas a double progression model works in a way of slowly increasing volume as the weeks go on. Um, Now, you could do a reverse linear, which would be the idea of going, uh, I'm going to start with eight reps and then go 10 reps and then go 12 reps, and then I'm going to repeat However, studies have actually shown that to be not very productive, and uh, I'm not exactly sure why, because if we look at tonnage over the months, it actually looks like you increase volume. However, they've done multiple studies on this, and it actually just shows that it's just not as productive, which is why a linear uh, or a double progression model or a combination of both. So I would choose a double progression model over linear for hypertrophy, Um, but in most cases, I'm probably going to do both, because a linear approach might be saved for the compound lift, so maybe on a hypertrophy day, you start with a squat, and you go, 10, 8, 6, 4, 10, 8, 6, 4, 10, 8, 6, 4, and you're doing this linear approach. And then on the accessory and isolation works, you're using a double progression model. And a double progression model can be used for a compound, but what this is is selecting a rep range and sticking with that rep range and the load you chose at the beginning of that rep range during the block, at the beginning of the block, and then working to increase how many reps are given in that rep range. And so what this looks like is We'll use a squat, for example, just because it's easy. You're doing four sets of eight to ten reps. Week one, you're gonna choose a weight that is challenging. It's in your RPE of eight to nine or you're in your RIR of one to two. So you leave one to two reps in the tank, but you do four sets of eight, right? Every time you hit eight reps, you know you're at an RPE eight or nine, meaning you're close to failure. You're in that ideal zone, but it's still good form and you can continue to um, not fatigue yourself too much. So you can do this the rest of the session and train at this intensity the rest of the session and the next few weeks um, without needing so many deloads. Then next week, week two, maybe you go, Nine, nine, eight, eight. 8, right? So you went from going four sets of eight, so 8, 8, 8, 8, to two sets of nine, two sets of eight, 9, nine eight, eight. Technically, your tonnage and your volume increased. You had two reps on each one, but if you're doing two reps extra this week with 250 pounds on your back, well, that's 500 pounds, literally, of tonnage, of volume. The next week, maybe you do 10, 9, nine, nine. Now it's even more. And then maybe week four, you get 10, 10, 9, 9. By week five, you're going 10, 10, 10, 10. So now you've gotten four sets of 10 with that same 250-pound load that you did in week one. And at that point in time, it's time to go heavier and change uh, back to eights, right? Or change the exercise. Right. But this double progression model, all you're trying to do is you're within a rep range. So 8 to 10, 10 to 12, 12 to 15, 15 to 20. These are all common rep ranges. 6 to 8 is even one. Um, it's not as hypertrophy focused because not as much volume, but it still works really well for certain exercises like a squat or a deadlift or something like that. And all you're trying to do is increase the amount of reps you can do with that load that you were once doing eight with or six with or 10 with or whatever the the lesser end of that rep range is. So by the end of the block, you're doing the higher end of that rep range. Um, and then concurrent goals, most likely you're going to do a combination, again, of linear and double progression model, or you can throw in some DUP um, or, or WUP. Um dupe or whoop. And uh, I like these because it's daily undulated periodization or weekly undulated periodization. Um, and you can even do like an exercise undulated periodization. Uh, and this would be per session. But basically with undulating periodization models, all you're doing is you're doing different rep ranges throughout the week. So this is more of a periodization model than a progression model because you can still use linear and or double progression models within this. So I'm going to dive into this a little bit more when we get into periodization specifically but in general what this means is that maybe one day you have low reps one day you have high reps one day you're doing speed work one day you're doing strength work one day you're doing hypertrophy work one day you're doing strength work or week 1 you're doing strength and speed week 2 you're doing strength and hypertrophy right or if your goal is hypertrophy you week 1 you're doing hypertrophy and strength week 2 you're doing hypertrophy And speed, so you can alternate these things, and it allows us to not have to do a block periodization approach, which, which would be us doing one thing for an extended period of time, then another thing for an extended period of time, and then another thing for an extended period of time, and then coming back to that first thing. So, a full four to six weeks on strength, full four to six weeks on hypertrophy, full four to six weeks on uh, power, and then coming back, which you would have a learning curve to regain those strength gains. So. The reason all of these matter is because they are how you avoid plateaus and you continue progressing, plain and simple, which no matter what your goal is, that's the goal. Um, now, something to consider with exercise selection as we get into exercise selection specifically, um, limb length, mobility, experience, and flexibility. Those are the four primary things um, that I would suggest. A fifth thing that I would say is uh, enjoyment and adherence, and we can get to that in a little bit. But mainly what we want to know here is for limb length, it, 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 You know, your height depends on determining uh, your height determines the movement patterns um, that you can accomplish and what your capabilities are or what we need to limit eliminate or change in in regards to exercise selection so a good example of this would be using the squat again if you have short femurs you're probably going to do a high bar squat Right? Um, If you're doing deadlift, you're probably doing a conventional deadlift, maybe even a trap bar deadlift. It's going to be more quad dominant. If you have really long femurs or you're tall, you're probably going to be doing a low bar squat. Maybe you're doing a box squat, um, and you're probably going to be doing sumo deadlifts because it allows for a much wider stance or elevated deadlifts. But these are all exercise selection changes just based on the height of an individual. And if you just think about it, it makes sense. So if you do, uh, like if I'm benching with somebody who's you know, I'm five, nine, five ten. If I'm benching with somebody who's six four, six five, which I've done before, I've even bench pressed with people who are 7 foot, um, pro rugby players, pro volleyball players, stuff like that. And the bench press is a completely different exercise, right? We're probably not going to go full range of motion. We're probably going to change the bench angle. We're probably going to change their grip um, because at the end of the day, they have a much longer distance to travel than I do. So even if they have the st- same strength, they have to uh, express that strength through a longer range of motion regardless, right? So I will tend to create a bigger range of motion because I'm shorter, I'll create a deficit or I'll create an extended range of motion to enhance that stretch, but these people don't need to do that because they're so tall. So our height determines a lot of this. It determines how well we can perform movement. It determines how well or how much we can load that movement depending on the range of motion needed, and it determines the exercise selection that's going to be best fit because we can change the exercise or limit the way we perform an exercise in order to enhance the, the capability to execute that exercise properly, right? Um, mobility and flexibility are quite simple as well. If somebody has extremely tight and uh, non-flexible, inflexible hamstrings, you know, an RDL is going to be tough for them because it's a very dominant, you right. They might not be able to go until their plates hit the floor. They're definitely not going to be able to do a deficit. So last week I was training and I shot a video for this and it'll probably be on Instagram by the time you guys listen to this, but I was doing a deficit RDL. I was standing on plates, and then doing an RDL. So I was going beyond what the floor would normally allow me to go for, right? Because I have good flexibility in my hamstrings and I have good core strength where I don't round my back on that. So I can do an extended range of motion deadlift. I can stand on a plate and increase the range of motion, right? A very tall person is probably going to do an RDL from pins on a rack and they're going to set those pins just below their knees because for them to travel mid shin is the same as for me to travel to the floor or, or, further because I'm on a deficit. So we have to consider their flexibility when choosing the exercise selection and variation. And the same applies to mobility. If somebody has poor shoulder mobility, I'm probably not going to do a barbell strict overhead press. If I'm going to do any type of overhead press, it might be an angled press like a landmine press, a high bench incline press, or at the closest variation of an overhead press, maybe a kettlebell overhead press, because one, it limits the load we can use uh, because it's it's more difficult to press a heavy kettlebell overhead than a dumbbell for most people, and also it it changes if you do the proper form for an extra a kettlebell overhead press, it's changing the the trajectory of the movement. It's more of a J press, more of an Arnold press in a way, um, and it and it kind of glide your scapula nicely, right? It doesn't it doesn't it allows. Um, it allows us to move the scapula uh, better um, to get overhead without creating uh, an issue with the shoulder, which an overhead press is going to cause, co- a barbell overhead press might cause more issues with that press. Um, so we're going to change exercise selection based on somebody's mobility needs as well as flexibility needs, right? Um, now, the the experience level is another thing. Obviously, certain exercises uh, are going to be... Um, harder, uh, for certain people. So your experience level is also going to dictate your ability to perform an exercise, right? So a speed bench press or a speed deadlift or a speed squat is a good example. These aren't lifts that we are doing with super, super heavy loads. So one would might think that it's an easy exercise to do. um, but to be able to perform a compound lift in a explosive manner, usually with bands or chains or something attached to it. um, so applied extra resistance and with good form and tension, it's actually really difficult. So to increase the velocity of the bar while still creating tension and holding a good form and executing properly, it's difficult. It's not an easy task to accomplish. So exercise selection is also gonna be determined by the experience of an individual. Um, a chin-up is a good example. Somebody might have the strength to, uh, to do a chin-up naturally, but their form is very poor, so I might put them on a jackknife chin-up or a lat pull-down so I can teach them the mechanics of their shoulders and their scapula prior to actually f- getting them to do a chin-up because the strength isn't the problem with the chin-up, but rather it's actually the form in the scapular depression and retraction of in the thoracic extension of the movement that is causing the issue for their form. Um, So experience level is going to dictate this quite a bit as well. Um, And this is why less change and more repetitiveness is actually better at the beginning because we want to build the skill of the movements. We want to acquire more motor units um, and, or motor uh, skills to acquire uh, the the proper skills to do the movement, right? To do the movement properly. Um, so limb length, mobility, experience, and flexibility, all those things matter. And the last thing would be adherence, right? Adherence matters because quite quite frankly, if you don't enjoy doing a movement, you shouldn't do it, right? If somebody, I have clients that are like, I just really hate hip thrust. And I do too, personally. I'm never going to perform super well in a hip thrust because I just don't have the motivation to do it. I don't like the movement. I think it's a great exercise for building glutes. I use it all the time in my programming because it is a phenomenal exercise that doesn't place a lot of uh, tension on the low back. So it's easy for people to build lower body strength without tension on the back. I just don't enjoy it. I, I simply don't enjoy it. Um, if somebody d- hates box jumps, I'm probably not going to put them on box jumps because they're not going to perform very well at them simply because mentally they can't stand the exercise. So what I would rather do is pick a different explosive movement, pick a different hip hinge instead of the hip thrust that is going to allow them to enjoy the process and therefore progress better. So exercise selection in general, what we're really looking at here is limb length, mobility, experience, flexibility, and last but not least, adherence. Now, The next thing to cover is my model of exercise sequencing. So my model of exercise sequencing is something that um, I don't necessarily think, it's not a thing that nobody uses. However, it's something that I've created just after I've, you know, built my own method in philosophy over, uh, really, I mean, accumulating knowledge, experience, study, research, all these things over the last 11 plus years and working with thousands of people, you know, from WWE stars, athletes who are banged up to everyday people, to physique athletes, to the mom and dad who just want to get better. Um, this is, this is kind of the, the process I've accumulated from learning from other strength coaches, going through things myself, as well as training so many people. Um, now there's, there's three things or there, I'm sorry, there's, uh, four, five, five things in my method Four, typically five, if you can include the warm up. but essentially what it is, it's, it's prime, explode, lift, stretch fatigue. And this, there's no analogy for this unless you want to, you know, PELSF because it's P E L S F. I should probably think of something better so I can have a, uh, um, an acronym for it. Um, so I'll work on that, but, but pr- Prime, explode, lift, stretch, fatigue. That is my method per session. Prime is the activation. So what we're doing in a priming uh, uh, circuit or an activation circuit is pretty simple. It's part of the warm-up. That's why I typically don't include this in my method. But I think a lot of people skip the warm-ups. They don't do warm-ups properly or they're just doing static stretching, which is horrible. We talked about that last time Um, or, or I'm sorry in part one. Or at best, they're doing a little bit of foam rolling and they're doing dynamic stretching, which still isn't, it's good, but it doesn't cover all of our bases. Priming or activating is where we start to load movements with uh, low injury wrist tension. So bands, body weight, stuff like that, light dumbbells, cables. Um, and we might be doing face pulls, hamstring curls, um, you know, rows, uh, glute bridges, core activation. So um, side planks, power presses, things like that. What we're doing is we are training our muscles. We are training our muscles in movement patterns um, with injury low injury risk resistance. So again, bands, cables, TRX rings, body weight stuff like that, um, in ways that are going to prime our muscles or activate our muscles and prime our joints in order to allow us to go through the compound lifts, the accessories, the heavy movements we're going to do better. So this priming phase is quite literally a way to prepare your joints and muscles for what you're about to do in the training session. Next, we have explode, right? And explode is where we're, again, priming or amplifying our nervous system. So, um, to explode, this is what we do at the beginning of the session after a proper dynamic warm up and priming or activation circuit is done. Um, and quite simply, you should be explosive. Like I don't care if you are 20 or 70 years old, the nervous system needs to be worked. And as we age, we actually lose the ability to do that. It's why falling is one of the leading causes of death for elderly. They can't catch themselves. So when they break their hip or they fall and hit their head or anything like that, and they pass away it's because their, their nervous system has slowed down. They're unable to stop themselves and brace themselves from falling. But this is also why, amp- like, if we amplify it uh, before a session, we are amplifying our nervous system to, to react, to explode, just like we would need to if we are falling. So, meaning, if you're going to do a heavy load or a high rep squat, let's say, you want to perform a sub-maximal effort. Um, you want to perform at a, at, at a maximal effort with that, And if we want to ensure that we are reaching our full potential of performance every single squat, every single sweat uh, set because we are getting ready to, again, do maximal or submaximal. And submaximal, by the way, is 80 to 95%. It's damn near as heavy as you can lift. Um, We need to amplify our nervous system. And we do that by being explosive in the same movement pattern prior to squatting. So if we do a squat jump or a dumbbell loaded jump or a box jump or something like that, it is a squat pattern, but it's done for lower reps with lighter weight in an explosive manner. And I'm not talking about a one minute AMRAP of box jumps because, you know, I I don't hate CrossFit. I don't want to talk shit on CrossFit because I do think there's a lot of things about it that I love. Um, But I do hate that single thing uh, because it's not only changing the real purpose and benefit behind ply metrics there but it's also a dangerous activity to do at such high reps and i've talked about this a little bit um but the point is simple amplifying our s- central nervous system our cns before doing the compound lifts we're going to activate um our neurological system in order to lift heavier have better form recruit more motor units and muscle fibers and perform the squat um at a at a better at a better load right Um, and and what that again what that means is that we're mimicking it so if we're doing a deadlift maybe it's a broad jump if we're doing a uh, bench press maybe it's a plyo push-up or a throw or some kind of upper body slam right but we're doing something explosive with lighter weight just for a few sets three to five sets being explosive in the same movement pattern what we're going to do is stimulate our nervous system and that's going to help us have better form create more tension lift heavier by recruiting more motor units and muscle fibers to perform that lift at a higher intensity and then we get into lifting right Um, that's the next part of the method and that's we get into the compound lift of the day. Um, you've warmed up, you've primed your muscles and your joints, and you've activated your nervous system through this explosive movement that we just talked about. Now you're ready and amped up to lift. Um, and again, this is normally we'd classify bench squat deadlift. As I said, I always add the overpress, chin up a row. Um, I think, it, you know, anything you're tracking is is important. But this is our main compound lift of the day. This is the thing that we are trying to get stronger at and progress as the weeks go on, so this is the thing that changes less often over the weeks. This is the thing that we are more focused on the periodization plan for because we want to see progress and we want to see things progress week to week, month to month, get stronger, um, and that is the, the lift portion of that. Um, next, we have stretch. So stretch is I'm not you know not talking about yoga or static stretching here. I'm talking about loaded stretches, RDLs, Bulgarian split squats, pull downs, functional strength exercises with a full range of motion sometimes encouraging a deeper stretch or a deeper range of motion, extended uh, range of motion off of a deficit, if possible, if the person has the flexibility. And the reason we want these here is because every single rep performed has both a stretch and a shortened cycle, whether we're extending that range of motion or not. The muscle literally stretches at full length, so the end range, so the bottom of a bench press, and then shortens to its maximum ability, right? And that's the peak contraction at the top of the bench press. Or during a bicep curl, this would be at the bottom with your elbows fully locked out, stretching the bicep, and then at the top with the elbows flexed flex as much as possible, squeezing the muscle and shortening that muscle belly. Um, This is a full range of motion, right? And which has, this has been shown in research to be more effective than partial range of motion, um, over and over and over again. Uh, partials do have their place, especially when we're trying to increase strength um, or, or if we're trying to accumulate more tension in the muscle um, as like a extended set. So if we do our final set and we're trying to take it to failure, we can do some partials. Um, but the point is is to, to, to truly improve muscle growth, body composition, strength, and functionality and movement and of how the body moves and how your body functions we'd go with a full range of motion any day, all day, right? So during this stretch phase, though, we're going to emphasize uh, the stretch phase of the ROM even more, right? This is part of the this method of, of exercise sequencing. This is partially because it gets somewhat neglected during most training, seeing how we typically are more focused on pushing through a rep and, and we track what we can fully lock out at the top, right? Or we can fully finish um, rather than tracking what, or, or paying attention to what we can steadily lower and what we can extend a range of motion on. This is also uh, because flexibility can be achieved just as effectively through loaded stretch, and I talked about this in one of the, the uh, I think it was part one, um, but research shows that, you know, s- loaded stretches, so RDLs, bench press, flies, exercises in resistance training can be just as effective as increasing flexibility as actually static stretching or yoga can be. Um, we also know that stretching muscle fibers is one of the factors that actually leads to muscle growth. Um, this could be through muscle damage. It could just be through um, creating more uh, tension and mechanical tension uh, and s- metabolic stress on the muscle, um, but Either way, it's very important for hypertrophy. It's very important for flexibility, both of which are going to apply to strength. And, and the caveat here, really the only caveat is um, it can be pretty fatiguing. So we do not want to do this prior to our compound metric-based movement um, or exercises, which is exactly why I don't recommend static stretching prior to training, which has also been documented to be um, to decrease performance in, in strength training. Um, but because of it being so fatiguing and you're stretching a muscle, we're going to do this after the priming phase, the explosive phase, and the lifting phase is done because those phases take more neurological capability and more strength to accomplish and more focus because they're more skill oriented and then the stretch phase comes next because we're going to see more breakdown and fatigue and we can maximize uh, hypertrophy but we still need a heavy load which is why that is that time the last phase is going to be fatigue Um, and this is kind of where we take it home right this is the end of the session this is where metabolic fatigue uh, based isometrics Taking a failure sometimes coming to play. This means basically selecting safe exercise that can isolate a muscle and be taken very close to failure, if not all the way to failure. So, curls, hip thrusts, uh, abductions. So, glute abductions, lateral raises. Chest flies, reverse flies, uh, hip extensions, back extensions, sled carries, or I'm sorry, sled pulls, farmer's carries, even metabolic worth like assault bikes, rowers, running, sprints, stuff like that. Um, if your goal is muscle growth or strength, we're probably going to choose bodybuilding-based movements. Um, this would be like taking a dumbbell lateral raise or, or doing a superset of bicep curls and tricep extensions to maximum failure using lighter loads and hitting rep ranges of 15 to 25. Because when we cross that 15 rep mark, we tap into a bit more of a metabolic fatiguing zone. We're generally uh, generating more metabolites and lactate, um, leading to a burning sensation, which we all know of, and, and really just a gnarly pump. But this has been shown to produce a good amount of hypertrophy with low joint stress and low neurological fatigue because the exercises in nature are just not very demanding of the central nervous system or very demanding on the joints compared to something like a squat or deadlift. It's also why blood flow restriction training is is the way it is. Right, we can accomplish that with high high reps. Um, another way to approach this, if your goal is fat loss primarily, is to use this for more more. Uh, metabolic conditioning, right? So exercises like salt, bike, sled, sprints, swings, farmers carries, core work, stuff like that. Um, but either way, we are tapping into a different energy system, right? More metabolic, anaerobic, alactic at times, that burning sensation. Um, we're fatiguing our muscles to a point where performance afterwards is unlikely to be impressive at all, if, if even possible. And we're generating more blood flow into a given part of the body to build muscle. But the reason we do this is because if we go with this, uh, this this order of operations of prime, explode, lift, stretch, fatigue, we are doing it in a way that prioritizes our mental focus, our energy, and we limit or, or manage our fatigue better throughout the session to allow us to better stimulate the muscle, to better perform every single set, so the, the lifting phase will perform better if we do the explosive phase first, the stretching phase will work best if we do it before the fatigue phase and we do it after the lifting phase, and the fatigue phase actually works best at the end because you've already generated some fatigue from everything else, this takes less brain power and you can take your muscles all the way to failure without creating so much central or or, uh, central nervous system fatigue or global systemic fatigue to where it's leaving you crippled and lethargic and, and beat down for days to come. So this model is exercise sequencing. Prime, explode, lift, stretch, fatigue. Um, if you want more details on it, uh, go to my Instagram. There, I have a guide in there, so there's that tab with guides, and I did a guide on this exact sequencing method, and within it, there's a bunch of posts, and I have a post for each one of these categories where I go in depth on each one of these as well, um, and these are also in the books and the guides and in the, the webinars. This is my method. This is what I use in the Taylor Trainer. This is what I use in my programming for clients. This is what I use in my personal programming for myself. This is my method, and I use it, and I teach it in the books, in the the webinars, all those things. So go check those out. Um, And that is actually a sequencing now. The next part of this podcast was going to be periodization plan and progression model. However, we are already at 50 minutes, and I, um, I know that I can't cover that in 10 minutes. So what we're going to do is we're going to push the progression model and periodization, uh, specifically periodization, how that implements into all this. We're going to push that into part four uh, of next week. So we're going to discuss periodization and the finer details of program design. And the truth is, the finer details of program design, tempo, rest, supersetting, a lot of those are, are very quick, easy topics to cover because they're just not that influential into the results you're going to see. So we should be able to cover all that next week. If not, this will be a five-part series, but um, we'll cover periodization next time. So, guys, that's it for today. We covered exercise selection and sequencing, which took a little bit longer than I had planned, but the truth is when you're individualizing a training program, there's just a lot involved. Um, and if you want to be able to access individualized training programs and actually begin to tailor the training process to yourself, as always, go te- check out the Taylor Trainer. Um, you can head over to trainer.net or you can click the link in the description of this podcast and go check that out today. Um, thank you guys for listening. I appreciate it so much. If you love this podcast, leave us a five-star rating and review and i will talk to you next time